Well, last week we began a new series in the book of Colossians, which I've entitled The Christ-Centered Life. And last week I said, if Christ isn't at the center of your life, then what your Christian life will become is it will just become a whole heap of theology, things that you believe about God and rules. It'll just become an ideology with an accompanying set of ethics. And I said that sadly, many Christians, I believe, are missing Christ. He is not at the center of their lives. He is not the one around whom everything in their life orbits. And because of this, when Christ is missing in your life, your life lacks beauty and it lacks power. And so we are studying the book of Colossians because in the book of Colossians, Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians because they were in danger of missing Christ. The the Colossian church had been planted by Epaphras, a young protege of Paul, and he had come back to Paul in Rome and he had told Paul how how the church had been going and, and then there were some great things that were going on in the church at Colossae. But there was also this heresy which had entered into the church And people were teaching that Jesus isn't fully God and fully man. And people were teaching that if you want fullness of spiritual experience, then you need to add something to Jesus. You need to add rules or religious practices or mystical experiences. But Paul knows to add something to Jesus is actually to take something away from who he is. And so he writes the letter of Colossians to remind the Colossians of the simplicity of the centrality and supremacy of Christ. And as I said last week, Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7 is probably the key verse of the book. It's probably a verse that I'd love you to memorize. It says, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. You see, just as you received Jesus is Lord. This is how you are now to live the Christian life with Christ at the center of it. So he said, what I want for us and what I'm praying for all of us over this next term is that as we study the book of Colossians, we'll see the greatness and grandeur of Jesus once again. And we will surrender our lives to him and he will truly be at the center of our lives and at the center of this church. And so every week as we study through the book of Colossians, we're going to be looking at a key aspect of living out a Christ-centered life. And in Colossians chapter 1, if you just open your Bibles and look down in your Bibles, the answers are there in the Bibles. It's found in page number 983 in your pew Bible, if you're using one of those. You'll notice in verses 3 to verse 14, Paul prays for the Colossians. In verses 3 to 8, He shares with them his thanksgiving on their behalf. And in verses 9 to verse 14, he shares with them his intercession, the things that he's praying about for them. And I think what we're going to discover from Paul is that if you want a Christ-centered life, you need a prayer-centered life. You'll never be a Christ-centered Christian unless you have a dynamic prayer life. And there was probably no one more dynamic in their prayer life than the Apostle Paul. He was a man who prayed always on all occasions, who was unceasing in his prayer. So what we're going to learn from this passage today is just two simple things. We're going to learn how to pray, and we're going to learn what to pray. So let's first look at the first thing. How should we pray? 
Well, the first thing that Paul says is we need, when we pray, to include a time of thanksgiving. Look down in verse 3 in your Bibles. Paul says this. He says, we always thank God. I want you to circle in your Bibles the word always. We always thank God. Whenever Paul prays, it always includes a time of thanksgiving. Now, what does Paul thank God for? Well, he thanks God for the way he is working. And in particular, we see in verses 4 to 8, the way that God was working in the church at Colossae. He was working in the church and he was working through the church. First, he was working in the church. Look down in verse 4. It says, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, if you were to think about what makes a healthy church, what metrics would you use in order to define whether a church is healthy or not? Well, most of the time, people use the three Bs. Do you know what the three Bs are? Bodies, buildings, and budgets. If the church has a lot of bodies in it, if the church has a fantastic building, and the church has a healthy budget, then this church must be a healthy, bu- a healthy church. Now, you know, I think that those bodies, buildings, and budgets are some indication of the health of the church. But in this verse, Paul uses another three things. He says that a healthy church is really a church that's full of faith and dependence on Christ. It's a church where the people in the church are filled with love for one another. And this comes about because they have a sure hope. They know for certain where they're going when they die. And do you know what? If you were to study the letters of Paul, you would find over and over through different letters that he uses these three things, faith, hope, and love, to assess the health of a church. And and, and it wasn't always present in churches. For example, the church at, at Corinth, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 13, Paul says, now these three remain, faith, hope, and what? Love. And he says, the greatest of these is? Love, but when he thanks God for that church, he doesn't mention faith, hope, and love. He just says, I'm grateful that God is pouring out spiritual blessing upon you. Why does he do that? Because there was no faith, hope, and love in that church. It wasn't a healthy church. But the church at Colossae was healthy. God the Holy Spirit was working in the church. People were depending upon the Lord. People were loving one another because they had this solid assurance of where they were going in the future. But it's not just that God was working in the church. God was also working through the church. Notice down in verse 5, he says, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. Paul says all over the world the gospel is going forth and it's penetrating hearts and people are becoming Christians and the gospel is increasing, it's bearing fruit all over the world. But it wasn't just doing that all over the world. Notice what he says, as it also does among you. This church was seeing people added to its numbers. God was working through the church and people were coming to Christ. Man, this is a healthy church. God is at work. He's at work in the church producing faith, hope and love. And he's working through the church to to draw people to Christ. And so what's the appropriate response when you see God at work? It's to thank God. It's to get on your knees and to thank him. And so every time you pray, it should include a time of thanksgiving. Now, why is thanksgiving so important? Well, as Led said, 
This year, we've got a number of students going to ACM from our church. A number of our ministry interns are going to ACM. And can you imagine what it would be like if when they get an assignment from Dr. Les, they think, oh, let me do some research. And so they go on the internet and they find someone who's written the perfect essay on this, on this topic. How do you think Les would respond if they copied and pasted that essay onto Word and then just submitted it? What do you think Les would do? He would fail them, wouldn't he? Epic fail, isn't that right? Because plagiarism is a bad thing, isn't it? Plagiarism is where you take the work of another and you deceive everyone into thinking that it's your work. Now, why we would be shocked if we found out that one of... I would be shocked if I found out that one of my ministry interns was uh, actually plagiarizing someone else's work, so don't do it. I'd be shocked. I think we often commit spiritual plagiarism. We take God's work and we deceive everyone into thinking that it's our work, that it's us who did it. And God will share his glory with no one. This is why thanksgiving is so important. Because it reminds us that everything we have comes from God. There isn't one thing that you have that you haven't been given. Even the breath in your lungs comes from Him as your Creator. Everything you have comes from Him. And that's why Thanksgiving is so important because it reorientates us to that reality. That God truly is at the center of our lives. We just forget it. And think that we're the sovereigns over our lives. That we rule over our lives. So every time you pray, every time you pray, it should include a time of thanksgiving. Secondly, when we pray, pray to the Father through the Son and by the Holy Spirit. Look down in verse 3 again. Paul says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's prayers are directed to the Father. And what you'll find in the Bible is the most common language of prayer is when we pray, we are to pray to God our Father through the work of the Son and by the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not saying that you can't talk to Jesus when you pray or you can't talk to the Holy Spirit. But what I'm saying is that when you address members of the Trinity, address them for what they are doing or the role that they play. For example, you know, what's wrong with this prayer? Just listen to this prayer for a moment. Thank you, Father, for dying on the cross. What's wrong with that prayer? It wasn't the Father who died on the cross. Or listen to this prayer. Thank you, Jesus, for sending your Son. What's wrong with that prayer? Jesus is the Son. Now, you might say, Timon, you're just splitting hairs here because God is one. Of course God is one. There is only one God. But the way that God has revealed himself is as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And if we really want to honor God, then it's best to pray to God using his personal name. For example, Tegan and I, we have a very, we have a, um, very close names. My name's Timon, she's Tegan. And on occasion, you know, what will happen is that someone will, you know, call me Tegan. I'll say, Tegan, come over here. And usually, you know, I go running because I, I just answer to anything, you know. But after a while, if people keep on calling me Tegan, I will correct them. I get a bit ticked because why Tegan and I are one in the covenant of marriage, we are different people, very different people. 
I am not Tegan. She is not me. And you see why there is one God. There are different persons in the Godhead. God the Father is not God the Son. God the Son is not God the Holy Spirit. So when you pray, pray to God the Father, through God the Son, and by God the Holy Spirit. Now let's look at our third thing of how to pray. Now these are, I'm going to give you very practical things. Because you need very practical things. Here's the third thing that we need to do. We need to develop uh, or make prayer part of our daily routine. Look down in verse 3 again. Paul says, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Now, I think that phrase there implies that Paul and Timothy had set times for when they prayed. And here's the thing. You are never going to uh, learn how to pray and have a dynamic prayer life unless you make prayer part of your daily routine. Let me read a quote for you from D.A. Carson from his book on prayer, Spiritual Reformation. He says this. He says, we do not drift into spiritual life. We do not drift into disciplined prayer. We will not grow in prayer unless we plan to pray. That means we must self-consciously set aside time to do nothing but pray. And then he goes on to write this. This is the fundamental reason why set times for prayer are important. They ensure that vague desires for prayer are concretized in regular practice. Do you know what? I have found that many Christians have vague desires for prayer. They think, yeah, prayer is important. I know I should do it. But it's never concretized in their lives because they never make prayer part of their daily routine. Maybe in part of your daily routine, maybe you need to get to work 15 minutes early so that you can pray. Maybe you're a morning person, so you need to get up before the kids so you can pray and have quiet time with God. Maybe you're a night person and maybe after everyone goes to bed, rather than watching another repeat of Law and Order, maybe you need to switch off the television and pray. You see, make prayer part of your daily routine. What we find in the scriptures is that every spiritual giant, everyone who was used greatly by God had a daily routine for prayer. For example, David in the Psalms, he speaks about how early in the morning he seeks God. Daniel is a great example. Daniel prayed three times every day in front of an open window and even under the threat of death, he still continued to pray. And of course, Jesus, our Lord, Jesus, it says in the Gospels, and I think the Gospel writers wrote this for us to show us what we should be committed to. It says that Jesus often went off to a desolate place and spent time with his father. So make prayer part of your daily routine. It's never going to happen unless you do that. And fourthly, make develop a specific list of things that you are praying for. Notice in verse 3, he says, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you since we heard. And look down in verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. You see, Paul heard certain things. And on the basis of what he, he heard, he then developed specific prayers for the Colossians. You know, you need a specific list of things you're praying for. Parents in this room. Do you have a specific list of things that you are praying for your kids about? Uh, mothers in this room, do you have a specific list of things that you are praying about for your kids? Who here are grandparents? Put up your hand if you're a grandparent. Your job is not done. You should be praying for the next generation. You should have a specific list of things that you are praying for. Now, one of the ways that I do it 
is that I have these cards, you know, these little you know, post-it cards that you write on, in, on my desk at work, and on the front of the card, I'll write down the name of a person, and then I'll write down specific things that, that, that I need to pray for on the basis of the needs in their life, and, and on the back of the, the card, I will note down any answers to prayer. Now, the reason that I do that is for a number of things. Firstly, having a prayer list helps me and helps my mind not to wander. Who here struggles with their mind wandering when it comes to prayer? So having having a prayer list can help you to keep your mind active when you're praying because you have specific things that you're praying about. But the second thing that's really good about having a prayer list is then you can see how God has been at work through your prayers. You know, just last month, I I went through all these cards on my desk, and many of them have prayers that I'm praying for you about, and I was able to set aside the ones that were answered. And it, it it was great to see how God is at work, how he's working through my prayers. It builds my faith, and I was able to have a fantastic time of thanksgiving to God. So develop a specific prayer list. So how are we to pray? Well, include a time of thanksgiving when you pray. Pray to God the Father, through God the Son, and by God the Holy Spirit. Make prayer part of your daily routine and develop a specific list of things that you are praying for. But now let's look at my second question today, which is, what should we be praying for? You know, in your real life group, does this happen? You finish the study and then you ask people, okay, how can we pray for you? What should we be praying for you? And what typically do people say? What what are typically some of the prayer requests that come out? Uh, greatly engaged this morning, everybody. What are some of the some of the requests that people have? Study, health, work, money, family, responsive people during a sermon. These are some of the things that might come up in your real life group. Now, the thing about most of those prayer requests is they're mostly prayers to ask God to change our circumstances. And I'm not against that. I'm not against going to our Father and bringing our needs before Him because He is our Father and He does hear our prayers. But I want you to notice that in this prayer, Paul primarily prays for the Colossians, not that God would translate them out of their circumstances, but that God would transform them in their circumstances. Look in verse 9, he says, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that, and here's the content of his prayer, that is a haughty clause, which determines the content of the speech, Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, the will of God here isn't like God's sovereign will, whether you're going to get married or what house you're going to buy or what car God wants you to buy. But rather, the will of God here is God's moral will, how he desires you to live. And Paul is praying for these Colossians that they might be filled with the knowledge of his will. Now, what does that imply? That implies that they aren't filled with the knowledge of his will. 
That's why he's praying for them. I'm praying that they might be filled with the knowledge of his will. Now, I want you to observe verse 9 again. Look in your Bibles in verse 9 carefully because we get this wrong. Paul doesn't pray for them that they might know the will of God. Do you notice that? He doesn't say, I pray that they, you might know the will of God. No. He prays that they might be filled with the knowledge of his will. And there is a big difference. And we often get it wrong. There is a difference between knowing the will of God and being filled with the will of God. You see, the word filled means to be controlled by. If you are filled with rage and anger, then you're controlled by rage and anger. If you're filled with jealousy, then you're controlled by jealousy. And so to be filled with the knowledge of God's will means that that knowledge of God's will that you have, it controls you. It directs your, the way you spend your money. It directs the way you use your time. It directs the way you, you treat your husband or your wife. It directs what you look at. You see, he is asking here for them really to, to apply the truth that they know to their lives. Now, this is a critical prayer to be praying for Christians because I have found that most Christians don't have a problem in knowing. They have a problem what in? Doing. It's not the knowing of God's will. It's the doing of God's will. It's being controlled by the will of God. It's doing what he desires in every single circumstance of their life. And there's a very important reason why we need to pray for one another, this, this prayer. If there's anything you can pray for me about, pray this prayer for me, please. Pray this prayer for me. Anything at all, I would write, want every single person this week, write it on your prayer list, pray this prayer for me. Because you notice what will happen if we pray this prayer, if, the, if this prayer gets answered. Verse 10, filled with the knowledge of his will, verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You will only live in a manner worthy of the Lord if you are filled with the knowledge of his will, if you are being controlled by the knowledge of his will, if you're living out the truth of God's word in your life. Now, what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of God's, uh, uh, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Well, walk is a metaphor in the first century for living, the way you live. And the word worthy, it means to be deserving of. When you think about it, like you think about a story on the six o'clock news, a story that's newsworthy is a story that's deserving of being on the news. A story, a, a car, many years ago, I, I took my car to an inspector in Queensland and he wouldn't, get, he wouldn't make it roadworthy. It's a beautiful old Commodore, but he wouldn't make it roadworthy. It wasn't deserving of going on the road. And here's what Paul is saying. We need to live lives that the Lord Jesus deserves. We sang a song just then. Did you hear what it said? It said, worthy is his name. Worthy is his name. Are you living your life in a way that Jesus deserves. Now, on one hand, we, we don't deserve anything from God. We deserve wrath and judgment, but he has given us grace. He's given us abundance of blessing. And now we need to live our lives in a way that he deserves. 
where, where our, our, our lives scream out. God is great. Jesus is good. Now, what is a life that Jesus deserves? Well, Paul spells it out with three simple phrases in verse 10. He says, fully pleasing to him. The life that Jesus deserves from us is a life of full obedience, where we are fully pleasing to him in what we do with our time, in what we do with our money, in how we think, and how we treat people. That is the life that he deserves, amen? He deserves nothing less than our full obedience every single moment of the day. That's what he deserves. What else does he deserve? He says, bearing fruit in every good work. God deserves, Jesus deserves a fruitful Christian life. Not a beat up one where you keep on tripping over the same sins over and over again. But he deserves a life that's fruitful. A life where the Holy Spirit is in control and he's producing all the fruits of the Spirit in your life. That's what he deserves. He's worthy of that because of who he is. And he deserves a life where we are increasing in the knowledge of God. Where we are growing. Where we are not stagnant or going backwards or going sideways. Ask yourself in 2014, from the beginning of 2014 to today, have I increased in the knowledge of God? Do I know Jesus better today? Because this is what he deserves. And that's only going to happen, Paul says. That's only going to happen if we are filled, if we're controlled by the knowledge of his will. Can you see how this is a very important prayer to pray? This is the most critical prayer to be praying for one another. Not that God would change our circumstances, but that in our circumstances, we would know how to respond and apply his truth to our circumstances. That's what we need to be praying. Lord, Lord, help us. Help us to apply your truth to our circumstances. But look at how he also prays in verse 11. Look down in verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power, According to his glorious might. The word power there in Greek is the word dunamis. Now, many preachers I've heard say that we get our word dynamite from the word dunamis. You know, God's power is explosive. But it preaches well, but it's actually not true. The word dunamis actually means to be able, to have the capacity to do something. Paul says that we might be strengthened with all the capacity we need to do what? In verse 11, he says, for all endurance and patience with joy. Endurance is the ability to continue trusting in God despite your circumstances. Patience is the ability to wait for God's intervention without getting bitter or anxious. And so you see that Paul, he doesn't pray for these believers to be translated out of their circumstances, but rather he prays that God would transform them in their circumstances. That they'd be filled with patience and endurance, with joy in the midst of their circumstances. There's this lady, and her name is, I've just forgotten. Joni Erickson Tata, thank you. See, it pays to go twice to church. And Joni Erickson Tata, 
She was a young girl who grew up. She loved swimming. She loved um, horseback riding. But when she was 15, she dove into a lake and the, it was murky water and the bottom was shallow and she had a spinal injury. And she ended up being a quadriplegic. She has a great testimony of how God used that in order to, to show himself to her. The interesting thing is now that she is 60, she actually has breast cancer. And so she's living with chronic pain. But she's brought out a new book, and this is what it's called, A Place of Healing. And she says this, when people ask about healing, I'm less interested in the physical, and I'm more interested in healing in my heart. Pray that I get rid of my lazy attitude about God's word and prayer, of brute pride. Set me free from self-centeredness. Those are more important because Jesus thought they were more important. See, the most important thing that you can be praying for people in their circumstances is that Jesus would become the most precious thing to them. I remember when my pastor, Graham, contracted lung cancer, well, found out he had lung cancer, that he only had 12 months to live. It was amazing to see him in the midst of those circumstances endure with patience and joy right to the end. See, I'm pray. Now, now, if you want prayer for healing, then come to the elders like it says in James and we will anoint you and pray for you for your healing. But Paul would also pray and make it a priority to pray that God would change you in the midst of your circumstances. So in the midst of your storm, you would know the peace that surpasses all understanding. So in the midst of when everything is flying up in your face, you know the joy of the Lord. All in the midst of your circumstances. So we've looked today at how we are to pray and what we are to pray. And you see, we've done this because the Christ-centered life is a prayer-centered life. You'll never have a Christ-centered life unless you're developing habits of prayer in your life. Now, I want to share with you the thing that spoke to me most about this passage. This week, as I was struggling in prayer to find a message for you, I struggled all week long. But on Friday morning, God spoke to me, and he spoke to me about Epaphras. You'll notice Epaphras is mentioned in verse 7. Just look in your Bibles in verse 7. It says of Epaphras that he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. A faithful minister of Christ. Now, what does it mean to be a faithful minister of Christ? Well, undoubtedly in that passage, he's proclaimed to the Colossians the word of Christ, the gospel. So to be a faithful minister of Christ means to proclaim the gospel. But did you know that there's only one other place where Epaphras is mentioned in the Bible? And it's over in chapter 4 of Colossians. So turn over in your Bibles in chapter 4 and verse 12. And look at what Paul says about Epaphras there. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. 
To be a faithful minister of Christ is not only about preaching the gospel, but it's also about struggling in prayer, praying for people that they might become mature and know the will of God. And as I sat there on Friday morning, I was challenged, Timon, are you a faithful minister of Christ? Are you praying for the spiritual maturity of those people in your church? Are you praying that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will? And I sadly had to confess my prayerlessness. But it's not just me who's been given spiritual authority. All the husbands here, are you praying for your wives and your families that they might become mature? Grandparents here, are you praying for your, for your, for your families that they might become mature? Wives, are you praying for your children? Mothers, are you praying for your children that they might become mature? Real life group leaders, are you praying for your real life groups that they might become mature? You see, to be a faithful minister of Christ means that you not only proclaim the gospel, but you get on your knees and you pray. Is your life filled with prayer? See, I think there is, there is a lot of prayerlessness in the body of Christ. That the reason that we may not have is because we do not ask. We don't bash on the door of heaven, asking for his spiritual blessings in our life and in the lives of those people we love. So I want to challenge us all here today to become faithful ministers of Christ. And to commit ourselves once again to prayer. Let's pray.